BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, August 7th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and to try it for free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only 5 bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com slash M-I-N-D-S. That music means only one thing. It's oh. Game of Thrones season. <laughs> oh my God, where's my popcorn and big glass of red wine? So for a warning to our listeners, we're going to be talking a lot about Game of Thrones during this episode. So if you haven't watched the past few seasons, we're going to definitely touch on topics that you might consider a spoiler or two. Indre, have you caught up on your Game of Thrones? No, I like to wait for the entire season to be finished so that I can binge watch because waiting a week is just like total torture. But are you a fan of this, you know, incredibly dynamic medieval catastrophe. So I don't know if you can have a bigger fan of Game of Thrones than me. I reread the books before each season, all of them before each season comes out. Oh my god. So have you thought about Game of Thrones in a science context before? I have. In fact, uh, I did an interview with Sam Keen uh, at the, in 2014, right at the beginning of the show. And I wrote an article for Mother Jones talking about the neuroscience of Hodor, um, whom, you know, as, as people might remember, uh, he's, a, he's a great example of a Broca's patient, a person that has a problem with speech production. And uh, anyway, yes, I can talk about that for ages, but that's not what you but want. But there, there's so much more that's uh, that potentially intersects with science in the show, whether it's the genetics, especially that of 
potential incest um uh or the chemistry of poisoning which seems to be one of the the deaths of choice on the show to even just uh the seasonality the the science of of the seasons coming and going especially a winter that could last five years uh and that's why we have on this week's guest helen Keane is an award-winning comedy writer and performer our british fans might know her from her stand-up show it is rocket science that she's performed all across the uk uh but late last year she wrote a book called the science of the game of thrones which immediately uh sent an arrow right through my heart (laughs) well let's just get things perfectly clear though i don't watch game of thrones for the science i watch it for the story no i watch it for um the kind of brutality of conversation that happens (laughs) during that show but it was interesting to look at the show through that science lens, especially in the context of, of viewing it as a medieval period piece, which is a time when science was viewed not in the same way it is now in modern times, where it was a bit of a mashup between magic and, and reality. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Helen Keane. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. You can print stamps from your computer, which saves you time and money. There's no special equipment necessary and no more waiting in the line at the post office. You can compare shipping rates and delivery times between the USPS and other major carriers. That ensures that you always get the best deal when you ship packages. You can also print paid shipping labels for USPS, UPS, and more. You can track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. And Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users. Savings start at just $0.03 per stamp. Businesses can even mail now and pay later with flexible payment options. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more, and when you sign up, you'll get SendPro free for 90 days. You'll get a free 10-pound scale, and when your free trial is over, you'll get SendPro for only $5 a month. And that special rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription. That's 5 bucks a month for SendPro versus $15.99 a month for Stamps.com. That's three times the features at one-third the price. But you can only get this deal for a limited time by going to pb.com minds. That's pb.com slash M-I-N-D-S to take advantage of this special offer. Helen Keane, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. Hello. Uh, So when you talk about Science of Game of Thrones, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is to talk about dragons, of course. Oh, yes. And... When you initially approached the topic of dragons, how did you cover a mythical creature that's both half fantasy, but also steeped in reality? Yeah, I mean, I think that was really one of the main sort of starting points, really, and and the main sort of inspiration sort of behind the book. I got really, really interested in all that because I think, you know, we'll never have a complete explanation, but it is a real curiosity, I think, that dragons are sort of obviously these mythical creatures, but they appear in myths right across the world. We have many, many different um, civilizations, many, many different cultures that have stories about dragons. They certainly aren't to any degree identical. They have different number of limbs, different number of uh, sort of attributes. Some of them breathe fire, some of them don't. Some of them fly, some of them don't. Some of them are friendly, some of them are extremely hostile. But we see these creatures time and time again. So I think, you know, you you realise just from a sort of... um, 
some kind of perspective, whether that's an evolutionary perspective or, or you know, some sort of cultural perspective in, in working in some way that we're not that familiar with, that there's clearly something going on there, there's clearly something to be investigated. And I think when you couple that with the quite extraordinary things that are true about dragons, the way, um, you know, dragon dragon eggs and, you know, the dragon development is, is, is sort of very, uh, it, it's sort of quasi-magical, I think, when you start looking into the science of that. And there are real parallels between what we see on the show with Daenerys's sort of petrified dragon eggs, which suddenly hatch uh, magically, and, and the way that um, dragons themselves can actually pause the, uh, the developmental process in, uh, when they're in, in, in the egg. Let's talk about that a little bit more, because I, I was sort of amazed to find out about this, that there are actual creatures that can actually go, lack of a better term, dormant inside of their egg um, before re-incubating it and, and emerging, which is something I thought was total fantasy when I saw that in the show. Yeah, I mean, it just seems that the whole developmental um, sort of uh, status of dragons is very, very influenced by things like temperature and environmental conditions. So they certainly can't sort of put things on pause for, say, 100 years. You know, they're not tardigrades. They can't sort of, you know, desiccate themselves and then come back to life uh, when water suddenly appears or whatever. But they are able to certainly, um, there certainly seems to be some sort of pause that occurs when um, there is some kind of environmental threat uh, to the egg that is sort of, you know, perceived in some sort of basic way, if, if you can talk about it that way. And also, of course, the way that temperature um, influences the sex are, of dragons and lizards and sort of related creatures like crocodiles. And, and, and the fact that you can have, you know, the chromosomes do not really correspond to the way chromosomes work in um, mammals. For instance, you can have uh, a female lizard who has an X and Y chromosomes, you know, because of the temperature that they hatch at, they will come out female, even though they have the sort of basic uh, makeup, which uh, you would expect to find a, a male creature. Do we have any hope that the three dragons um, that are left could actually reproduce and have meaningful offspring? Yes, you see, this is very interesting because uh, we know this because uh, there was but there was an idea for a while that Komodo dragons um, could reproduce asexually, parthenogenesis, uh, I believe it's called, and um, we actually saw this because um, a Komodo dragon called Flora at uh, Chester Zoo in um, England uh, had definitely not been around any male. Komodo dragons her whole life. We knew that because she was in a zoo, and she became pregnant and uh, basically hatched. Uh, a number of male dragons from eggs. And those male dragons, obviously, because they were male, they weren't exact clones of her, but they were completely derived from her genetic makeup. So they were um, basically, uh, I think the, the idea being that if um, she had, for instance, if a Komodo dragon, for instance, or a group of female Komodo dragons find themselves on an archipelago somewhere, they find themselves isolated, cut off from other uh, members of their species, they can potentially um, generate new males to breed with the females in the group in this way, which is an incredibly you know, successful, potentially evolutionary strategy for an animal that m might find itself stranded, that might find itself cut off in that way, because they do tend to be island dwelling. So I think, uh, yeah, so presumably, and, and we know from the world of Game of Thrones, I mean, dragons, again, they have this sort of, there's, a, there's an idea that I think in the, one of the maesters says at one point in the books, I'm not sure if you've seen it in the show or not, that dragons can actually change sex. They are sort of what we, I suppose we might almost call gender fluid, that they can sort of become either male or female at will. So, I mean, that is sort of vague echo of, I suppose, this idea of uh, the way that uh, dragon chromosomes and, and lizard chromosomes work. So yes, certainly, I think there is a possibility that Danny's dragons may not be uh, the last of their kind, that we may get more dragons. 
which is good because I have a bit of a worry that one of them is going to uh, end up toast uh, in this season. So, um, <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> I worry. I, I worry. Yes. I have to delve into the world of poisoning because it seems like every week somebody is offed via poison in their food or drink uh, from King Joffrey on down the line. Can we talk a, a little bit about um the the art and science of poisoning and if does if this does actually track back to um medieval times and historically um was this was this utilized and can it be done in the way we see it on uh in the show well i think definitely i mean i think up until you know up until relatively recently i think it was probably not that difficult to get away with poisoning people because until you have sort of you know uh, csi essentially you have forensic science uh, comes on the scene it's it's you know analyzing what's happened to somebody is is quite difficult but yeah i mean i think certainly for monarchs in medieval times uh, poisoning was a huge 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 concern so we know for instance from reading accounts of queen elizabeth i of england her court uh, that she had a number of ways and a number of methods um, to protect her against poisoning. There are lots of, she was um, a member of the Protestant faith, a lot of people in England and uh, Scotland and Wales at the time were of the Catholic faith, so they were trying to poison her or kill her or basically replace her with a Catholic monarch. So she had a number of strategies to prevent this. One of them was uh, rather fanciful. It was it was a piece of what was said to be unicorn horn. Uh, obviously, that's uh, not real. It was, in fact, the, uh, the horn of a narwhal, uh, obviously a creature in the uh, Arctic, which, you know, it kind of looks like a unicorn horn, so you can see where the confusion's arisen, uh, which wouldn't, I think, almost certainly do anything to um, stop you from being poisoned. There was an idea that a unicorn, if it placed its horn in um, a sort of cu- in, in something poisoned or in sort of, you know, even muddy water or something, the water would be instantly purified um, because unicorns have this sort of association with purity and virginity and all these kind of seemingly very desirable qualities in medieval times. But something that did have uh, possibly more um, sort of scientific backbone to it was, a, was I'm probably going to say it's bezor, I think it's pronounced bezor, uh, which is from uh, an Arabic word meaning antidote. And it's actually um, a sort of lump of mineral deposits from the intestines of um, sheep or uh, some sort of or goat. And uh, it is actually put into, in a small sort of uh, quantities, put into uh, drinks or food to um, potentially eradicate any poisons. And there does seem to be some research, and it's absolutely conclusive, but there does seem to be some research that suggests that um, a bezel, because of the compounds in it, would neutralise um, some of the compounds within a poison like arsenic. So that's quite, uh, quite interesting, I think. I'm disappointed that unicorn horns or not don't have a scientific basis but i'm <laughs> sorry okay with to that. be the one who tells you i'm sorry <laughs> uh, i'm i'm sort of shocked by this idea of eating sort of a lump of minerals can uh can neutralize certain poisons like arsenic um I, i'm also wondering uh, in in medieval times would poisons be as quick acting as we see on the show it seems almost fantastical fantastic to see how quickly somebody dies from a poisoning yeah, I mean, I think I think it probably depends on that. I mean, I'm sure there are some substances that are so noxious they would act very quickly, but you would probably notice them, and they would probably, I guess, give the food quite a strong flavour. So I think it, it might. That's probably part of the problem that you know, you you some people could get sick. They could, you know, is it is it you know, it, it's very difficult. Those in those days, you know, very very limited understanding of diseases generally. So you know, is it poisoning? Is it another disease? You know, somebody might be ill for quite a long time. So it's very difficult to trace back 
to poison in someone's food. I think a lot of people were probably wrongly accused of um, poisoning people in the Middle Ages. And likewise, I suspect a lot of people got away with poisoning people in the Middle Ages. So it was uh, probably a bit of a free-for-all on, uh, on, the, on the killing people with poison front. I, I want to talk about the dire wolves, which um, probably represents the saddest points in the show for me when any of the dire wolves oh. have, been, have been killed off. Um, this idea of a of a dire wolf in and of itself, um, uh, talk about that a little bit and and some of the background on on uh, humans running with dire wolves. Yes. So, I mean, we don't know a huge amount um, about how humans um, interacted with direwolves specifically. We know a bit more about humans and uh, wolves, you know, modern wolves, grey wolves or whatever. But direwolves um, were actually larger. They were sort of larger cousins of the modern wolf. And we know so much about them. We know a huge amount uh, about their uh, sort of lives. I, and their... I didn't even know direwolves were real. Oh, I sorry. thought they were yeah. totally made up. Yeah, I, I didn't. I must admit, I didn't know either. But yeah, it, it's totally because of the um, La Brea tar pits in Los Angeles, where unfortunately hundreds, I think thousands actually, of uh, these creatures ended up getting stuck. And so their remains are really, really well preserved. So we can tell from the sort of remains that we've found of them, the sort of, you know, the fact that, for instance, um, you find the remains of a direwolf, which has obviously uh, sustained illness or injury at some point, but that hasn't been what's killed it. It's still ended up in the tarp. It's obviously, it's been in as part of a social group. Um, the other members of its group have fed it and supported it while it, while it recovers from its illness or injury. So we know things like that. We know how large they were. We know they had pretty powerful bites, quite big teeth. I mean, they were not the size of the direwolves we see on the show. I mean, I think in the books, uh, I think uh, Rob rides into battle on the back of his direwolf. And unfortunately, uh, real world direwolves were not so large that you could sort of ride them around like ponies, unfortunately. But um, yeah, they were certainly, they were real and, and pretty ferocious. They were, they were pretty unpleasant. But unfortunately, uh, they went extinct. So they obviously were not quite the, uh, quite the superior predators uh, that we see on the show. And they were sort of uh, potentially outcompeted, I think, by coyotes, uh, who sort of moved into their territory, and also the ancestors of modern wolves as well, who seemed to have been better at hunting, and, and the prey that they were uh, relying on possibly uh, died out, possibly due to changing conditions. But but do humans have a a, a relationship with grey wolves, as you mentioned, in in the way that we see humans have a relationship with dire wolves in the show? Yeah, I mean, I think that's incredibly interesting. I mean, again, it's one of those areas that's still being researched, but we sort of know that obviously dogs are the descendants of wolves. And we know that dogs, for instance, will look at our faces. There's a lot of research that suggests that dogs are one of the few animals who can actually respond to human beings. So they will look at your facial expression and try and work out what you're thinking or feeling. So there's this sort of sympathetic relationship between us and dogs, which, you know, is very nice today and is all kind of sweet and friendly, but I think may well date back to a time when humans um, were incredibly codependent on, on wolves and the ancestors of dogs that they had uh, domesticated for hunting. And, and again, that sort of comes into the whole um, sort of interesting idea of ravens as well. We see in the show that it's possible ravens as messengers because uh, where we find um, wolves in the wild and they're also ravens, very often the ravens also team up with the wolves and they sort of follow them. They make a lot of noise when the wolves have made a kill. And, and there is a theory that possibly way, way back uh, in prehistoric times when humans were hunting, they may have hunted alongside both um, wolves and 
ravens. So it may have been this sort of uh, sort of three-way kind of team hunting hunting prey together. So that sort of gives you this idea of where that kind of very special, almost sort of magical relationship comes from. I guess that we see in lots of mythology as well as in the show this idea of this relationship between sort of with sort of ravens and and birds as, as messengers, almost messengers from the gods, and also um, wolves as sort of co-hunters and, and and defenders and friends to human beings. What a bizarre scene to think about us hunting alongside wolves and ravens. <laughs> yeah. um, you you keep bringing up the word magic and magical. In the construct of a, of a book around science, you sort of blend these two items together in the idea of medieval history, which you know the show is, is somewhat based on. Can you talk about the interrelationship between science and magic in that time and how they may have been at odds or or um, in concert in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think definitely in concert. I mean, we sort of know, for instance, that someone like Isaac Newton, who, you know, we think of as one of the great sort of founding figures of science, but he was also, very, when you actually um, look at his writings, he's um, also very, very interested in um, the whole idea of sort of transmuting base metal into gold, into alchemy. And, and when you look at the way those things are written about, the language is, is, is completely magical. It's all about transformation. It's all very, it's very, very strange sort of stuff to read from somebody who we would associate, you know, with these with these sort of great ideas and, and, and somebody who's, you know, we think of Isaac Newton, we think of the person who sort of, you know, made, gave, gave us the ideas that made things like space travel possible. So it's very odd to discover that he was very, very interested in magic as well and, and obviously believed in magic and obviously had various sort of schemes and side projects on the go that were quite magical in addition to his science. So I don't think in... Um, certainly probably up until the Enlightenment or up until the 18th century is when it's only then you start getting subjects sort of separated out. For instance, things like astronomy and astrology were the same thing. You know, you weren't looking at uh, the, the skies to sort of purely for the pleasure of working out the orbits of planets and things. You were looking at them so that you could tell your king or your leader uh, what might happen to him uh, next week or whatever. So, and, and, and the sort of discovering the ways planets moved was almost a sort of side effect of that. So I think something that's very, very interesting and we see sort of a little bit uh, in the show, but not so much because obviously the maesters in the show who are the nearest things, I guess, to scientists in the world of Game of Thrones, they are often very sceptical about magic. And, and there's this idea that magic was a force in the world and it's now left the world. I think that's one of the things that the show does very, very well. It's, you know, into our modern eyes, it shows us people who are very, very sceptical uh, about magic and very sceptical about these, you know, the idea that there might be dragons or that, you know, magical things are possible. And then we see those people sort of changing their minds. For instance, the sort of journey that Tyrion goes on from being this incredibly sort of modern, sceptical, sort of rational person to somebody he was absolutely sort of blown away by the sight of these, these beautiful dragons and, and, and the sort of magical possibilities that they contain. I think it's fascinating that we're talking about this in a historical context um, for the most part. But I think that fascination between science and magic continues today. And you can see that with so many relationships between the science community, the magical community and the skeptical community. So uh, I totally see the threads of that continuing hundreds of years later. Yeah, I guess James Randi and people like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I want to talk about Hodor, my favorite character. I think everyone's favorite character on some level. Um, and this, you know, his situations uh, was sort of driven by this magical idea of, of somebody entering his mind and sort of mucking around a bit, leaving him with the ability to only say one word. 
And I want to see, is that actually something that happens? Like we get that level of aphasia where someone is left with the ability to say only very limited things, but still have mental faculties beyond that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we have a real, um, we have a real world example of this, and I'm just totally, it, um, I'm just totally finding it in the book. I'm sorry, cut that bit out about Brocker's area. I'm trying to remember uh, the uh, guy, uh, the name of the original guy. So yeah, so there's a guy called Paul Brocker who is one of the, um, he's a French surgeon. Uh, he's working in the 1860s, and he's basically one of the people who really lays the foundations for you know, modern day neuroscience. And um, he encounters uh, obviously many patients during his career and one of them is a guy called Pierre this guy's in um, middle age he's had I think I think he's had a I'm just trying to remember actually what's actually happened to him I think he's had some sort of head injury or I'm not sure he can actually maybe he can't actually say what's happened to him actually maybe no one actually because uh, he's just using this one word and the one word is tan but he doesn't just say it in a sort of monotone way he says it in a very expressive way so he is sort of his conversation is every bit as expressive as, as, as yours or mine would be, but it's just he only uses this one word. And, and, and it's a very, very unusual condition, expressive aphasia like this, but it is something that we see, you know, in, in other people as well. There are very few patients with it, but it is certainly something that's documented. And, and there are people with in sort of modern times who, who also have this condition. So um, it, it's kind of the area that... Um, uh, Brocker discovered would actually been damaged uh, in his patient Pierre. I obviously discovered this after Pierre had died because there were no um, fMRI scans in those days. But he uh, basically identifies the area he's got. Uh, it's sort of left hand side frontal lobe, and um, he basically realizes that that's you know that's where the damage has been sustained, and that's what's causing this inability to um, use a variety of words. That that's what means this guy is sort of fixated on this one word, tan. And um, so that's really you know we still call that area today Brocker's area. So it's very much associated with speech production and fluency and it's something that you know neuroscientists will study uh today in in, in relation to those things so um yeah we actually have so there, there is there is a genuine example i mean i think actually hodor has a scar but i think it's actually on the other side of his head so well, there's nothing to say that brocker's area couldn't be on the other side of the brain in the parallel world that exists in game of thrones of course for a show that is so much about suspension of disbelief and uh fantasy you really dove into the science with this book. What was the motivation to really take this incredible series and, and analyze it in this in this completely different lens? Well, I think I think I've always been really, really interested in the idea that sort of the way in which science fiction predicts science fact. So the idea that, you know, it's this sort of two-way street almost, that people are reading about things in fiction and then they're becoming sort of inspired or motivated to create those ideas in reality or to ensure that those things never happen in reality. And I think there's quite a lot of um, work in that area on science fiction, but I think in fantasy less so. In fantasy it almost feels like something slightly different. It almost feels like um, part of a world that we sort of could be moving towards part of a world that we, we might actually sort of choose. And I think, um, for instance, um, really kind of interesting stuff that's happening at the moment in the field of genetics with CRISPR-Cas9, for instance, that we might gives us, gives us all kinds of really, really wonderful opportunities. So, for instance, it gives us the opportunity to edit um, the genome of viruses to, you know, make them harmless. So we can do things like you know, HIV. We might be able to make that completely not a threat at all simply by editing uh, the genome of the virus. But also it does open the door to the idea of, of, of creating creating different life forms, it, of, of sort of splicing together almost, of sort of mixing up um, genomes, of creating
king of you know new creatures and obviously we still they'll still be sort of subject to the to the to the laws of, of physics you know we won't be able to make a flying dragon that's the size of drogon because that wouldn't be physically possible but we could certainly make something that looks like drogon uh possibly and uh, even if it, even if it can't fly and breathe fire and so i think that's kind of an idea that we're moving towards it's a very difficult area to regulate um that's my understanding at the moment that there's because it's such a new frontier there aren't that many laws in place so you know there there is this sort of idea that maybe at some stage you know some sort of incredibly wealthy billionaire is going to have a party for uh their child and you know what's the ultimate party favor for all the kids who come to the parties get to you know take home a little unicorn at the end of the night well then that would be you know Queen Elizabeth I, very handy for her. But um, that would obviously, you know, taking home a little unicorn or a dragon or some kind of fantastic creature that's been created purely as a pet, purely for entertainment, you know, that doesn't seem like uh, something that is uh, perhaps as fantastical as it once was, given the advances that we're making in gene editing. And plus, you can use the unicorn horn to cure any poisons that have you happened could. To you. So, you could. Yeah. <laughs> so, so handy if coming... you're a billionaire. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You just. <laughs> We're coming up on the end of the series. The series. Do you have any hopes um, as it as it reaches its conclusion? I just, I, I genuinely don't know what's going to happen. I think um, it's just been a really great. Show. I mean, I, I kind of love it because I sort of really love the book. So I'm, I'm so desperate to read. Obviously, Winds of Winter. I'm sure we all are. But I'm also just really intrigued to see how you know how the books and how the show kind of interrelate. Because you know, obviously, we've we've lost our sort of smug advantage now as book book readers. We're literally an unknown territory. So I, I genuinely, it's one of those things where I, I I will always carry on tuning in because I I, I really don't know how it how it's going to end. I think it, it's probably not uh, not going to end well for a lot of people. I think we're going to see a lot more deaths. As I say, I'm very worried uh, about. I don't think we're going to make it to the end with three dragons. I just hope the remaining direwolves are still in play. I, I really really want to see Nomeria again. I'm sure we all do. But um, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I just think it's it, it's just really really beautiful, fantastic television. So I'm uh, I'm just really like everybody else, like all the other fans. I'm just really really excited to see what's uh, what's going to happen. Really. I don't often admit this, but I think I'm secretly rooting for the White Walkers to to win out because the villains never seem to win in these shows. So uh, that's my yeah. Hope. They might. They might. They're incredibly inf- effective as 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 a force. I sort of looked at that a bit in the in the book. Actually, I'm very interested in that. I sort of talked to. Um, Kelly Wienersmith, Dr. Kelly Wienersmith at Rice University about parasitology and the way that um, it's a really kind of expanding field, actually. So it, it seems to be the case that so many um, of the sort of predator-prey interactions that we, we see and we think, oh, yes, that's one animal catching and eating another animal um, are actually influenced by um, parasites, are actually influenced by parasites who've taken over and in some way influenced the behaviour of the prey because the next stage of their life cycle involves being inside uh, the predator. So I think that's kind of both horrifying and fascinating. And, and I think there's certainly I felt that there was a sort of direct parallel with the way that the White Walkers are controlling uh, the sort of the human dead, the whites, as they're sort of confusingly called in a way that sounds exactly the same. So I just think that sort of uh, kind of that kind of relationship. And, and obviously, we see sort of echoes of that as well in, in the sort of, you know, the manipulation and, and you know, in, in, in the sort of uh, way, say, for instance, Littlefinger behaves at court and tries to sort of manipulate people. But that very, very literal mind control, that very literal, um, absolute control of, you know, an army of other creatures is something that we do, you know, see in, in in nature and I think also as well actually in a few other George R. R. Martin novels I'm trying to there's oh gosh I should, I should look this up there's another 
oh my gosh, there's another book that, uh, of his, which is quite an early science fiction book, which is all about um, a sort of creature that sort of parasitizes, parasitizes other uh, creatures, including humans. On that horrifying and fantastic note, uh, Helen Keane, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. Thank you. So I love Helen Keane's work. I think she's just an amazing comedian, very smart, very great to listen to. And I have to say that one of the things that she pointed out that I didn't know was true was the fact that dire wolves existed. I totally thought that was a, you know, a figment of George R.R. R. Martin's imagination and one that I really thought was very cool. So I happened to record this interview when I was in Los Angeles. And when she mentioned dire wolves like fell into La Brea tar pits, I was like, I need to go check this out. Um, I didn't end up going, but yes, I didn't think dire wolves were real either. And that it, it was totally made up because I've read about dire wolves in other fantasy novels. And so that was sort of a, a bizarre sort of take. Also, this idea that poisoning was actually used like reasonably um, commonly, maybe not as much as we see it in the show. Um I'm surprised because poisoning seems like a totally ineffective way to kill somebody. Well, except that if you think about sort of where medicine was, even up to 100 years ago, people really just died mysteriously of things. And so I think, you know, if you have a trauma, if you have a knife wound or somebody cut your head off, it's obvious how you died. But if you had some kind of gastrointestinal problem and some vomiting or something, you know, fainting or whatever, you know, it's I think it'd be much more difficult to figure out what happened uh, with those kinds of symptoms. So in some ways, it you know, it's sort of a, a way in which people can get away with murder. Yeah. I, oh, okay. The How to get away with murder, the Game of Thrones edition. Um, the other thing is this idea that there are animals that uh, lay eggs that can, you know, essentially go into hibernation, those eggs and come back to life. That was really bizarre to me. You know, I've always heard of tardigrades and water bears essentially going into that sort of hibernation. But the idea that an egg can be in suspended animation for a period of time, like the dragon eggs were, also strike me as bizarre. Though, I do have, I have one quibble that I don't think came up. Dragons wouldn't have four legs and two wings, right? Because the wings are an appendage, right? Like, they would have two legs and two wings. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're thinking about them as dinosaurs, you know, like a, a pterodactyl, for example, will have wings instead of limbs. But, you know, you can imagine uh, situations of uh, evolution, you know, having the, the, the wings be an added appendage that gets selected for that isn't just a limb turning into a wing. Oh, well, we don't see any other creatures that have six appendages in that world. What about spiders? Oh, do we see spiders in Game of Thrones? No, but I, what I'm but saying But they have is, eight. <laughs> yeah, sure. But spiders developed eight limbs. So okay. imagine that, you know, you've got lo- lots of millennia and, and, and millions of years of n- natural selection. You have another similar type animal. And, you know, I can imagine how it could work out. And again, we don't know a ton about uh, the sort of world of Game of Thrones, right? Because I mean, we just get these like little glimpses. Um, so we don't know whether there are other kinds of animals that we just haven't been exposed to yet. But you're telling me I can speculate, right? Yes. I'm also telling you that dragons are fiction. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> 
Um, but, you know, it actually reminds me of uh, it took a behind the scenes tour at the Cal- California Academy of Sciences where they have these collections rooms. Uh, and so they have and, and, you know, a museum like that, which has been around for over 100 years, has interesting collections of things that now we wouldn't necessarily preserve or we wouldn't even, you know, kill, right? Or keep. Uh, So one of the things I saw, for example, was a narwhal tooth, uh, you know, this sort of unicorn fish. And so there, there are such, such bizarre animals, even in our world that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, So, you know, you can easily see how a kind of museum like that could provide a lot of fodder for a writer to create sort of evolutionarily plausible uh, animals that don't exist right now, but, you know, could have been selected for even on this earth. I'm pretty sure George R.R. Martin didn't visit the Natural History Museum in his local town before writing this book. But it's an interesting interesting theory. (laughs) So that's it for another installment of Inquiring Minds. Thank you for joining us. I also want to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgul, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, the way you think season seven should end, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and to try it for free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only 5 bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com slash M-I-N-D-S. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.